Hello, Salam, Diagwis, and welcome to the History of Modern Iran podcast, episode 10. Malcolm Khan, Akhunzadeh, and the House of Oblivion. On our last episode, we saw a chastened Iran emerge battered and bruised from a humiliating defeat in the Anglo-Persian War of 1856-57. The fallout from the conflict was immediate. Extortionate taxation to pay for the war effort and the disruption of the conflict led to food shortages and riots, which were put down brutally by the army. The defeat weakened the position of Chief Minister Nuri, who was, somewhat unfairly, held responsible for the whole disastrous undertaking. The vizier's diminished standing proved politically fatal, and he was removed in 1858. Appropriately enough, the fallen vizier shared the fate of his predecessor, Amir Kabir, sentenced to internal exile, where he lived in obscurity until his death at the hands of political opponents in 1865. Most people expected the Shah to announce a new chief minister immediately after Nuri's resignation. Since the time of Fath Ali Shah, the government of Iran had been dominated by strong premiers like Agassi, Nuri and Amir Kabir. Given that almost every one of these chief ministers had ended up dead or exiled, one wonders why there were so many volunteers for the job. However, Nasser al-Din, now 30 years old, had chafed under both the domineering Kabir and the influence-hoarding Nuri. Instead of appointing yet another powerful chief minister, the Shah announced a major reorganisation of the Iranian government that would see the personal power of the monarch himself expanded. Rather than having all affairs of state concentrated in the person of a single chief minister, Nasser al-Din created a council of state with six ministers, each responsible for one sphere of government and answerable directly to the Shah. He also formed a consultative council, modelled on the British House of Lords, consisting of notables, senior bureaucrats and secular men of learning, including some prominent reformers who were to act in an advisory capacity. Now, this reorganisation was not a step towards constitutional government. The Shah's arbitrary power remained, and was even expanded by the replacement of a powerful vizier with a number of comparatively weak ministers, most of whom were conservatives. Moreover, the Consultative Council quickly became a dead letter while the Council of State met only irregularly and exclusively at the instigation of the monarch. Still, the diluting of the vizierate was probably the most significant government reform introduced in the Shah's long reign, even if, like most of Nasser al-Din's initiatives, it was poorly and half-heartedly implemented. These changes at the heart of government alongside a temporary enthusiasm for reform on the part of the Shah, gave confidence to those who wished to change the Iranian status quo. The 1850s and 60s saw the emergence of a new generation of reforming Iranian intellectuals, 
most of whom had encountered European ideas through study abroad, in the Dar al-Fanun, or through service in the diplomatic corps. These young Iranians believed that Iran, in its contemporary state, was doomed to further defeat, marginalization, and humiliation, and that only a comprehensive program of reform could avert further disaster. Foremost among these young reformers was the charismatic teacher and diplomat Malcolm Khan. Mirza Malcolm Khan was born in 1834 in the Armenian Christian community of New Julfa, a suburb of Esfahan. His father, Yaqub Khan, was an interpreter and nominal convert to Islam who had leveraged his knowledge of foreign languages to become part of the Shah's inner circle. Like other members of the cosmopolitan Armenian community in Iran, Malcolm was brought up with much greater exposure to foreign ideas than his Persian Shia contemporaries. Malcolm's knowledge of the West was deepened after time spent in France, first as a student and then as part of the Iranian negotiating team that ratified the 1857 Treaty of Paris. It was during these treaty talks that the young Armenian first made a name for himself, proving himself a valuable contributor in the complex negotiations. Upon his return to Iran in 1858, Malcolm's star rose again when he established Iran's first telegraph line, linking the Dar al-Fanun with the Shah's pleasure garden in Tehran. The Shah, always hungry for technical novelties, was highly impressed by the new invention. Malcolm Khan further impressed the monarch by inviting Nasser al-Din to attend scientific demonstrations in the Dar al-Fanun. These demonstrations were nothing spectacular, but they were a novelty in Iran and further enhanced Malcolm Khan's reputation as an almost uniquely capable miracle worker, particularly in the eyes of the king. Indeed, Nasser al-Din once lavishly praised the intellect of a court eunuch by remarking, quote, This man is even more clever than Malcolm Khan. End quote. This reputation for genius and ability was carefully crafted by Malcolm himself, who was, above all else, an audacious self-promoter and bullshitter of world historical proportions. In his defence, at least part of the reason for Malcolm's relentless self-promotion was his genuine desire for reform. By enhancing his personal standing in the eyes of the Shah, Malcolm hoped to win his sovereign over to a comprehensive programme of modernisation. To this end, Malcolm laid out a blueprint for reform in his Kitab Chaye Gebi, or Book from the Unseen, the text of which was circulated in manuscript form among the Qajar court, but very much intended for the eyes of the Shah himself. At the core of the book from the unseen was the belief that legal and political change in Iran was required before technological and military progress could be achieved. Under traditional Persian kingship, the monarch's domestic role was to encourage prosperity, justice and good governance. He did this through reward and punishment. Capable and virtuous courtiers 
officials and governors would receive land grants, pensions, gifts and promotions, while corrupt or tyrannical ones would be disciplined through demotion, corporal punishment, exile or execution. The monarch's prerogative to deal out reward and punishment was unlimited by any checks beyond his own conscience. A shah was good when he exercised his despotic powers for the good of the realm, and bad when he exercised them to its detriment. The Book from the Unseen imagined a radical break from this tradition. The text proposed an unusual mixture of autocracy and constitutionalism, and seemed to draw its influence from semi-absolutist European regimes like Habsburg Austria and the Second French Empire. Under Malcolm's proposals, the Shah was to remain the source of all political authority. However, this authority was not to be exercised arbitrarily, but through a clear legal framework. The shifting power centres of the old government were to be replaced by a council or majlis and a cabinet of ministers, both of which would be directly appointed by the Shah. The former would act as a legislature and the latter as an executive. The powers of both would be kept rigidly separate to prevent the over-centralisation of power in any one individual institution or person. For this same reason, domains of ministerial authority would be clearly delineated to prevent overlapping spheres of power. Additionally, the reformed state would promulgate a comprehensive law code that would clarify the confusing melange of Sharia and state law that bedeviled Gajar-era judicial reformers. In the most liberal sections of the Kitab, Malcolm proposed a Bill of Rights which included equality before the law and freedom of conscience, radical proposals for their time. Other sections of the Kitab are more authoritarian and illiberal. For example, it proposed the death penalty for corruption and bribery. Had this particular section been implemented, the vast majority of the state's civil servants, the Shah and Malcolm himself, would all have been marched to the gallows. The Kitab also set forth a number of more practical measures. It called for the establishment of a central bank, the expansion of the standing army and the creation of a comprehensive education system. The specific details on these proposals were slim. Malcolm seems to have been of the opinion that as soon as his governmental and legal reforms were implemented, then the rest would naturally follow. One absence from the cocktail of ideas in the Book of the Unseen is Islam. Malcolm only briefly mentions the possibility of religious objections to reform on the part of the conservative ulama, a possibility which Malcolm quickly rejects before moving on to other issues. This cursory dismissal of possible religious objections was typical of Malcolm's thought more generally. Khan was, at heart, a convinced Europhile who believed that Western institutions could be exported to Iran with minimal modification. His conversion to Islam, moreover, appears to have been a largely nominal move to advance his career. The fact that he later married an Armenian woman in a Christian ceremony would seem to confirm that his adherence to Shiism 
was mostly one of convenience. Malcolm did, however, recognise the importance of faith in Iran, which remained a deeply confessional society in which the fatwas of the Mujahids carried great weight. To deal with a possible backlash from religious conservatives, Malcolm made the bold claim that the institutions and ideas of the West were, in fact, based on traditional Islamic principles which had been lost over time. Shiite Persia was not adopting the laws and customs of the West, but rediscovering them. According to Hamid Algar's biography, on which I am relying heavily, Malcolm's aim was to quote, accomplish the westernization of Iran under the guise of an Islamic reformation or renaissance, end quote. Or, to quote Malcolm himself, quote, as to the principles which are found in Europe, we must get hold of them somehow, no doubt. But instead of taking them from London or Paris, instead of saying that this comes from such and such an ambassador, or that it is advised by such a government, which will never be accepted, it would be very easy to take the same principle and to say that it comes from Islam, and that this can soon be proved. End quote. All of these arguments were made in bad faith. Khan's private outlook was essentially secular, bordering on atheistic, and his use of Islam almost entirely instrumental. Indeed, he was candid about his strategy when addressing European audiences and in his private correspondence. Quote, I knew that it was useless to attempt a remodelling of Persia in European forms, and I was determined to clothe my material reformation in a garb my people would understand. The garb of religion. End quote. If Malcolm Khan sought to use Islam to give cover and legitimacy to a European-influenced modernising project, his acquaintance and contemporary Ahun Zadeh simply rejected the Muslim faith entirely. Mirza Fatali Ahunzadeh was born in 1812 in Iranian Azerbaijan and raised in the town of Nuka, which, in 1828, became part of the Russian Empire under the terms of the Treaty of Turkmenchai. Ironically, given his later thought, Ahunzadeh was initially expected to join the ranks of the Uluma, but was persuaded not to do so by his anti-clerical calligraphy teacher. Instead, Ahunzadeh utilised his fluency in Russian, Persian and his native Aziri Turkish to rise through the ranks of the Russian civil service as a translator and interpreter. Influenced by the contemporary nihilist movement in Russia, Ahunzadeh abandoned his youthful fate in Islam in favour of European materialism and positivism, writing, quote, I am indifferent to all religions and do not favour any in hope of salvation. I prefer that religion through which man can achieve happiness and freedom in this world. End quote. Despite being ethnically Aziri and a loyal servant of the Russian state, Ahunzadeh was also a pioneer of Iranian nationalism. His ideas on the subject were most famously set down in his 1865 work, De Maktabat. De Maktabat presents itself 
as a dialogue between the Iranian Prince Jamal and the Indian Prince Kamal, with the latter largely serving as a mouthpiece for Ahunzadeh's own views. Ahunzadeh, through Kamal, argues that Iran's contemporary shortcomings can be traced back to the Arab invasion of the 7th century. Pre-Islamic Iran is presented as an almost perfect utopia with just kings presiding over a happy, intelligent and prosperous people. With the Islamic conquest, this nationalist paradise was corrupted by the allegedly inferior culture and religion of the Arabs, who are depicted in the Maktabat as naked, superstitious, lizard-eating savages. For Khunzadeh, only the abandonment of irrational religious beliefs and the Sharia would give Iran a fighting chance at rediscovering her ancient glory. He believed the Maktabat would be, quote, more effective than an army of a hundred thousand men in shaking the foundations of Islam, end quote. Akhunzadeh's influence in his own lifetime was restricted to a small circle of radical intellectuals. However, his ideas would later become a potent force within Iranian nationalism, especially in its more anti-clerical variants. His arguments in the Maktabat also marked the beginning of a distinct trend of defining Iranian identity in opposition to an Arabic other, a trend which would become more pronounced in the 20th century. Unfortunately for modernizers like Ahunzadeh and Malcolm Khan, the Shah's post-1858 love affair with reform proved to be short-lived. By the early 1860s, a combination of domestic unrest and overt criticism of the government was unnerving Nasser al-Din. This was a recurring pattern of his rule. The Shah would recognize the need for reform, but then, as soon as there was significant momentum in this direction, his paranoia and insecurity would suddenly cause him to lurch back towards conservatism, especially if he felt there was a potential threat to his own prerogatives as king. The paranoid Shah was particularly troubled by the growth of the so-called Faramush Khunez. The Faramush Khunez, or, in English translation, Houses of Oblivion, were founded by Malcolm Khan in 1858. They were modelled on European Freemasonry, into which Malcolm had been initiated while serving as a diplomat in France. If the book from the Unseen was an attempt to win over the Shah to Malcolm's reform programme, the Faramush Khune was an attempt to seduce a broader section of the Iranian elite. The institution combined the obscure rituals of European Masonic orders with that of a cultural society or debating club, where ideas, including dangerous ones, could be discussed within the security of a secret fraternity. Its membership included bureaucrats, minor Qajar princes, graduates of the Dar al-Fanun, and Uluma, essentially mid-level members of the country's ruling elite. The prominent role of Malcolm Khan, a beardless, European-educated Armenian whose commitment to Islam was, at best, dubious, made him an unpopular figure among more conservative forces at court. 
the obscure and secretive nature of the Faramush Khune, like its European counterparts, inevitably caused suspicion, as did the presence of controversial figures like Jalal al-Din Mirza, a radical Gajar prince whose ideas mirrored those of the materialist Akhunzadeh. If such suspicions had been limited to conservative ministers and a few Mujahids, it would not have been a major problem. The Shah, however, was predisposed to be antagonistic towards secretive Masonic organisations like the Houses of Oblivion, especially given the association of European Freemasonry with Republicanism and the monarch's own fear of conspiratorial threats to his throne. Conservatives at court did not have to work particularly hard to convince Nasser al-Din that the Faramush Khune was a den of Republican subversion. In October of 1861, Nasser al-Din moved decisively against the House of Oblivion. The official government gazette of that month declared, quote, It has recently come to our knowledge that certain of the lowly ruffians of the city have spoken of founding and organising European Houses of Oblivion and expressed a desire to establish such. Therefore, a clear imperial decree is issued that if henceforth anyone utter the expression and phrase House of Oblivion, let alone attempt to establish such, he will be subject to the full wrath and chastisement of the state. Let use of this word be completely abandoned, and let no one concern himself with these absurdities, for he shall, without doubt, receive thoroughgoing punishment. End quote. Malcolm produced his own later account of the dissolution of the Faramush Khune, which owes more to his own tendency for self-aggrandizement than it does to the truth. Quote, at last the Shah was alarmed at my power, which in truth had become superior to his own. He sought, in spite of our old friendship, to kill me, and my followers sought to kill him. For two months we both lived in great fear of assassination, and then we came to an explanation. I loved and revered the Shah, and I asked permission to travel. My followers took leave of me with tears, even the mullahs kissing my feet. End quote. Despite Malcolm's grand claims, it seems likely that the total membership of the Houses of Oblivion never exceeded a couple of hundred initiates, and the whole organisation was suppressed with relative ease. Contrary to his own account, Malcolm did not ask permission to travel abroad, but was exiled to the Atabat on the direct orders of the Shah. The Fall of the House of Oblivion marked the beginning of a period of conservative reaction which saw court reformers in retreat for the rest of the 1860s. Malcolm's exile to Iraq did not mark the end of his political career. He would continue to fall in and out of royal favour for the rest of his political life. When we encounter Malcolm again in the 1890s, though, the man we meet will not be the flattering courtier of the 1850s, but a trenchant and unyielding dissident whose ideas would not only be discussed in the parlours of radical princelings, but in raised voices on the streets of Tehran, Tabriz and Esfahan. Malcolm's writings, despite their inconsistencies, will provide a blueprint of reform and resistance, 
as the Gajar state faced a series of crises that would culminate in the end of absolutist rule and, eventually, the overthrow of the Gajar dynasty. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a five-star review on iTunes, Podcast Republic, Stitcher, or whatever podcasting app you use. You can follow me on Twitter, at modern underscore Iran, or communicate via email, historyofmoderniranpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, goodbye, slán, chodáv.